0: Well, while everyone is returning to their seats, I'll go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. we have been in 2 Corinthians for a little while now, so I, I trust that everyone, even if they're not to their seats yet, knew this was coming. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been working our way through the book in 22 messages, and so today is number 13 of 22, and our text is chapter 5, verse 16, through chapter 6, verse 2 which if you have one of the Red Bibles, is on page 966, page 966, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, and I want to ask you one more time, if you're able, if you would stand so that way I might honor the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, "'From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh.'" of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, would you help us now as we turn to the preaching and the hearing of your word? Would you... Allow me, I acknowledge my weakness. My weaknesses are great. So would you demonstrate your power through the preaching of your word, even in the midst of my own weakness, so that our trust, our faith, might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of the one who raises the dead. And Father, we also acknowledge that even in our hearing we are weak. We're prone to hear and forget We're prone to left to leave unchanged, so would you allow your word to be like seed that is planted deep and rich soil, not not that the birds are able to to grab and snatch away, but but that takes root and produces fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold obedience in our lives. Make us more like your Son, we pray, through the preaching of your word. Do all that you desire for our good and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Diving into sermon preparation on a Monday morning can be a daunting task. More than once, I think I've come out of my office and said to Tom and Aaron, I'm not sure that God wants this text to be preached. It just feels so challenging. But one of the, the, the great difficulties in working with the text and studying and meditating on it so that you might preach it is is not only trying to to work out what, what each sentence says, but asking this question. This is the question I have the interns ask themselves. Why do we think that the Spirit inspired the author to write this text? In other words, when we look at 2 Corinthians five sixteen through six two for example, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write these words and place them right here? What, what is the divine intention and, and, and my prayer each week and my prayer for the interns, as they work for the text as well is that we might see that in the text Now, I will acknowledge as, as difficult as that can be on occasion, there are some things that will help and one of the things I, I sometimes find myself looking for in a text is does the author in any way frame the text? So sometimes the author will begin a text on a certain note, and then when he gets to the end of this section, he returns to that note, and thus it kind of provides a framework, a framing of the text. And I think there is at least the slightest bit of framing in this text. You can see in verse 16 that Paul begins our text saying, from now on. That is, Some time has come about. Something has happened. From this moment now on, something has changed. Something has implications for us. And then when you get to the end, in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49.8, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then you will see Paul repeats that word now, again twice. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so I think when we see that Paul is doing something, like framing this text, that showing us that something has happened in redemptive history, something has happened so that, so that now things are different, because now is this favorable time, because now is this day of salvation that he mentions from Isaiah 49 verse 8. I think the best way to understand what's going on in this text then and we don't often do this, but it's to go back and begin with this text where Paul quotes from. So I want to ask you to turn your Bibles one more time, we'll come back to this text, turn with, your, with me in your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, the text Paul is quoting in Isaiah 49 is Isaiah 49 verse 8. Now let me tell you a little bit about where Isaiah 49 falls so that we can set the context because I think Paul is drawing from all of this. Isaiah 49 falls right in the middle of two crucial threads in the middle of the book of Isaiah. One of those threads is that God is announcing that when His people go into exile, He is going to bring about a work of restoration. Here's what I mean. In about 587, 586 BC, the Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to the city, starving the people out. It, it was such a brutal moment that the people's starvation became so great that mothers would boil their own children and eat them. They were surrounded, they were starving. Finally, the Babylonians broke through the wall, burned, destroyed the city killed some, took off many into exile in Babylon. Isaiah chapter 39 ends with Isaiah prophesying that day is coming. It had not come yet, but he was prophesying that day is coming when the Babylonians, he says to Hezekiah, will haul off your sons into exile. It's important for us to remember this. The reason that God makes clear through the prophets when that, that judgment is coming is because God wants us to know this is His work. The reason that's so crucial is if we do not miss, if we do not see that, then we might think that somehow the Babylonians are greater than God Himself, as if God was, was trying to protect the Israelites, but He could not withstand the power of the mighty Babylonians. But that's not what's going on. This is why every time the prophets say, this is coming, and when you're conquered, and when you're destroyed, and when you're hauled off into exile, know that it is the work of my hand. It is my judgment against you because of your rebellion. And that indeed happened. And Isaiah 39 marks the the end of that note of judgment. And Isaiah 39 ending with those words saying that the exile is coming. But Isaiah 40 begins, comfort, comfort my people. And from Isaiah 40 all the way to the end of the book, Isaiah 66, God begins unfolding that just as He is going to judge the people and take them into exile, so He is going to do a mighty work of restoration, a work of restoration that's going to be so mighty that that no longer will we say the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the God who has brought them out of Babylon. Babylon. And so one of the places then, one of the threads that Isaiah 49 intersects with is the second half of the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66. It falls right in the middle of it where God is saying, I'm going to do a work of restoration and bring my people back. The other thread that Isaiah 49 falls right in the middle of is a section that we might call the servant section or the servant songs. Because throughout these chapters, God keeps bringing up his servant. It is through his servant that he will accomplish salvation, through his servant that he'll work his good works. If you look, for example, at Isaiah chapter 50, just turning over one chapter from where you are in Isaiah, we see a few things about the servant. In chapter 50 verse 5, the servant says he is not rebellious. That wipes out every single other individual except Jesus. In verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me, who will declare me guilty? Again, he is guiltless. Verse 10 of chapter 50 of Isaiah, "...who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant?" The servant is to be obeyed. By the time you get to Isaiah 53, and we read in Isaiah 53 verse 5, that the servant will be wounded for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, that that all we like sheep have gone astray, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on the servant, the iniquity of us all. Or in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It becomes clear that this servant that Isaiah is speaking about in these chapters all the way from 42 through the end of the book is Jesus Christ. That's confirmed when you get to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah 53 and Luke tells us in Acts Acts 8, 34, and 35 from that text, Philip preached to him Jesus Christ and his work. So here's the question. If the servant is Jesus, which we know, and He's going to carry out this work of restoration that Isaiah 40 through 66 prophesies. What is this work of restoration? What is is it going to look like? Well, when you begin to look at the chapters in Isaiah, it becomes clear that it's something bigger than God simply bringing the Israelites who were scattered into Babylon and made exiles there back into Jerusalem. Something bigger is going on. God's just not doing that. He's doing more. In fact, this is not only going to involve Israelites, it's going to involve Gentiles as well. Look at ch- Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. Isaiah says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It would be too light of a thing if the servant's work was only to save Israelites But rather, Isaiah 49 verse 6 continues, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So now the servant Jesus is not only bringing Israelites to God, He's bringing Gentiles as well. And He's not just bringing a small number that were scattered from Jerusalem, He is bringing an enormous number of people back. Look at Isaiah chapter 49 verse 20. In Isaiah 49 verse 20, it's it's, it's personifying Jerusalem as, as, as if Jerusalem is a mother and all her children have been taken from her. And yet listen to the way the text reads, Isaiah 49 verse 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. In other words, there's going to be so many of them, Jerusalem, you're going to feel too small. Verse 21, then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren. All her children had scattered, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? And the Lord will answer in verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried in their shoulders. The servant is going to bring a people to God so glorious and great that they will be greater than any Jerusalem, any earthly Jerusalem can handle. Not only that, but then when you get over to chapter 51, verse 3, Jerusalem begins being talked about as if God is recreating Eden. 51.3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert. Like the garden of the Lord. All of a sudden, now the, the people that God is bringing back, Jews and Gentiles through his servants, are not, not simply filling the, the earthly Jerusalem, but a, but a new Eden, like the garden of God. And then when we get to Isaiah 65, the text that Diff read earlier, in Isaiah 65, verse 17, God announces what he is doing. Isaiah 65:17: For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. God says, here's what I'm doing. That glorious Jerusalem that is going to be turned into Eden is going to fill the whole earth. In fact, here's what's going on. God prophesies in Isaiah He is going to save a people, Jews and Gentiles, to Himself so that they might be brought back to God and dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. In Isaiah 49, verse 8, is the text Paul picks up. That... When the Lord announces in Isaiah 49 verse 8, He will do this glorious work in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. So, you can go back to 2 Corinthians 5 now. This is all by way of introduction. If that's true, then from the time that Isaiah wrote 700 years before the coming of Christ a discerning reader of Isaiah 49 would have been looking. When is this favorable time? When is this day of salvation? When is it that God is going to act in a miraculous, spectacular way to bring people to God, to restore people to God, both Jews and Gentiles, bring them into a glorious new creation? From Isaiah 49, verse 8, everyone should have been looking for this time. Even if... You and I did not discern that from the reading Isaiah. I promise you the creation itself knows what's coming. Paul says in Romans 8 that the created order itself, the grass, the trees, the sky, this earth has been groaning ever since Genesis 3. It's groaning. For the revealing of the sons of God, which Paul identifies as the resurrection of our bodies. Why? Why is the creation groaning? It's groaning for the resurrection of our bodies because, Paul says, in that day, not only will we who live in bodies that are wasting away and are frail like jars of clay be given new resurrection bodies, but Paul says this, The earth itself, the created order itself, is groaning because it longs to take part in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The created order itself, every time there's a tornado, every time there's famine, every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a tsunami, and you ask yourself, what is going on in this world? The answer is, the earth is groaning and longing to obtain the freedom that we're going to get at the resurrection. And God announces through the prophet Isaiah, that day's coming. Because I'm going to bring my people to myself. I'm going to make the earth free from its curse. And we will dwell with our Lord forever in that favorable time, in that day of salvation. Here's what Paul then says in our text. Chapter 6, verse 2, the very last sentence. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What Paul wants us to know is that Jesus Christ who lived and who died, when He walked out of that tomb alive in a resurrected body that could no more be subjected to death, He was walking out as a picture to us of the new creation to come we were getting our first glimpse at what the new creation would be like. Because now, here was standing our Lord in His resurrection bodies, a foretaste, like we sang earlier, of what we will one day know. And Paul wants us to know the second Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb in His resurrected new creation body, the time had come. He inaugurated God's glorious saving work of bringing about His new creation. We're not there fully yet, but it's already begun. And what Paul is saying in our text is, if that's true, if now is the favorable time, and if now is the day of salvation, and if this glorious promise is now already begun, it has huge, major implications for how we think and how we live and how we act. And this morning, what I want to do then is look at this text and highlight three of those implications that, that Paul brings out. What now do we do? What now is true if indeed God has begun his work of new creation through his Son? Three implications. The first one is this it changes how we regard people. It changes how we regard people. This is where Paul begins in verse 16. From now on, he says, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, now what does Paul mean when he says, when I regard other people, I don't regard them according to the flesh? Well, I think we get an idea of it when you go back to verse 12 of chapter 5, and Paul says to the Corinthians, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. In other words, I think that what Paul says here is, back before I knew Christ, back before the the glorious work of Christ walking out of the tomb alive and all of a sudden bringing about the work of new creation, there was a time, Paul says, when I regarded men according to the flesh. I regarded everyone as maybe as if this age was all there was. And, and Paul says, but, but that's not how we regard any, each other any longer. If this age were all there is, then we would only look at things that matter in this age. Perhaps we would judge one another based on who has wealth and who doesn't. Who has education and who doesn't. Perhaps individuals who have this ethnic background and individuals who have another ethnic background, this race or that race, and on and on and on. But Paul says no longer do we do that. There is something that is deeper and more real that transcends all of those things, race and wealth and education and whatever you want to do, all the things that the world says should divide us. Paul says there's something that transcends that. There's something that that cuts through all of that. And so I no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. He says, I once regarded Christ according to the flesh. He He once considered Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, hanging upon that cross in Calvary, nailed to the tree, drowning in his own blood, and he looked at him as if he was weak and a blasphemer to be despised and discarded. And when the risen Christ appeared to Paul in the sky and announced to him, The favored time had now come. He was alive and calling Paul to himself. Paul says, I don't regard anyone to the flesh, according to the flesh, any longer. Well then, how do we regard one another? What is this reality that is true, that transcends all of these things that theoretically should divide us? Listen to how Paul continues. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore... Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. There was a time when Paul would have looked at a Gentile and thought, I want nothing to do with you. But when Paul realized that God was carrying out his work of new creation, making new creation individuals out of Jews and Gentiles, Paul has now become the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, what Paul says is the reality that transcends all the things that should divide us is whether or not we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we are new creations. If we are in Christ, we are united together in Christ. Now, Paul would have realized that very early on, right out of the gate in his conversion because you remember what Jesus said from the sky when Paul was on his way to Damascus and Jesus spoke to him. Paul had been persecuting the church and Jesus from the sky said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul could have answered, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting the church. But Jesus was making a point. My people have been united with me and therefore they're united together in me. And so one of the glorious realities for you and I that that we need to realize is that you and I have been united. We have been made family in Christ. Even as John says, if we do not love one another whom we see, we cannot say we love God whom we can't see. You and I, because God has done His glorious work of new creation in each one of us, He has united us together as family, as those who love one another, as those to whom when we minister to one another, it's as if we are ministering to Jesus Christ Himself. This is what He'll say on the Day of Judgment. When you gave water to me when I was thirsty, and they will say, when did we give water to you when you were thirsty? And they will say, when you've done to the least of these, my brothers you've done to me. So one of the realities that Paul says right off the bat is if God's doing His work of new creation and He's doing it in us, then what that means is that you and I have become united in Christ. It changes how we review things. All the reasons that we might throw out as to why we should be divided all go to the side because we can say that we are united in Christ, united as children of God. The gospel does this work. But there's a second major implication. It means that you and I can be reconciled to God. It means that we can be reconciled to God. If indeed now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ is carrying out God's promised work from Isaiah, one of the implications is that we can be reconciled to God. This is what Paul says in verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I'll look at that in a second. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Again, we'll look at that in a second. One of the things that that, that Paul says in this text is that God has done the work of reconciling us to Him. We in our sins are made far from God. We are, we are under His judgment, enemies of God. But God has done the work of reconciling us. But here's, this raises a question, doesn't it? If God is holy and we are sinners, how in the world can we be reconciled to God? One, Paul tells us the answer. He tells us in verse 19... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, the answer is the reason, because God is holy and that we are sinful, the reason we can be reconciled to God is because God has decided not to count our trespasses against us, not to count our sins against us. We might say, well, that's good news. It's as if you and I have been full of sin and God all of a sudden says, I've decided I'm not going to count it against you. But isn't that a problem? I mean, doesn't God reveal that He's not the kind of God who does that? Exodus 34, verse 7, God says He is the one who will by no means clear the guilty. In, in Proverbs seventeen, fifteen, He says, the one who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So how is it That if God says, I will by no means clear the guilty, and you and I are guilty, full of sin, and we all are, all of us, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, all of us have turned aside. None of us seek for God. None of us does good. So how is it that the holy God, if we're full of sin, can just decide, I'm going to not count their sins against them. Can God just sweep our sins under the rug and still be holy? No, He can't. If God just decided that He was going to say about us, boys will be boys and girls will be girls, I'm just going to act like they haven't sinned. He would be compromising who He is. He is the holy God. He is the just God who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, then how in the world can Paul say that God has reconciled us to Himself, not counting our sins against us, and still be just and holy? The answer is in verse 21. In verse 21, Paul says, for our sake He made Him, that is, the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the answer. God the Son was sent by the Father, and He came voluntarily in order to lay down His life for us. This is how Paul describes it. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In other words, on the cross, Jesus was acting as a sin offering, bearing the punishment and the penalty that our sins had merited. We can say two things about Jesus on the cross. He is our representative, and He is our substitute if our faith is in Him. And each of those words is important. Jesus is our representative on the cross in this way. What He does counts for us. This is why when you read the Scripture, you find language like in Him and in Christ all the time. And when we read language about us dying, we read language like we have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. How? Jesus Christ dies on the cross as our representative so that His death counts for us. Here's what it means for us. Imagine that you had committed a major crime that called for a long prison sentence. And you were sentenced, you were guilty, you were sentenced to that long prison sentence, and you served that prison sentence, and then your sentence was up. And you walked out of that prison, having served your sentence behind you, do you have to walk around all antsy, worried that you're going to be punished because of your crime? No, because your sentence has already been exhausted. Penalty has been paid, punishment has been meted out. The scripture wants us to know when we place our faith in Christ, that is the exact reality. When the devil says to us, You have sinned and you deserve to die, you can say, I have died. I have died with Christ. He is my representative, and in Him, sentence has been paid. But He's not only our representative. He's our substitute. This is why the language of the Bible also is language like Paul saying about Jesus Christ, He loved me and gave Himself for me, or Christ died for us. It's not only in Him and with Him, but for me, for us. In other words, because Jesus dies as our substitute, although it's as if I've died with Him, He has died in my place, so that you and I don't actually have to go through and suffer the sentence that our punishment deserves, that our sin deserves. This is what Paul is saying when he says in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin for us. All that my sin merited has been placed on the son who as my representative and as my substitute has died so that I have died with them and he has died so that that he has died for me. Penalty paid. God is just. He will by no means clear the guilty. Do not think for one second that the reason you and I can be forgiven of our sins is because God has relaxed His holiness. You and I can be forgiven of our sins because God the just meted out the penalty our sins merited on His glorious Son. God made Him to be sin for us, to be the sin offering for us. But it doesn't stop there. If that were it, we might say, well then... All the sins that you and I have committed have been tossed aside. That's it. It's as if I've never sinned. But no, no, it's better than that. Listen how Paul ends verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only then does Jesus' death count for us because we're united with him by faith, but his perfect life, his justifying resurrection counts for us as well. So that when you and I place our faith in Christ, all of us stand credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, there will not be those who have been good enough and therefore get to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Only those who are welcomed into the kingdom of God on that day of judgment will be those who are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if your faith is in Christ, that is yours. So the answer to the question, how in the world can a holy God reconcile sinners like us to Himself? Well, He doesn't count our sins against us because He made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God has done so that now we might belong to Him, forgiven of our sins and those whom we know He approves of and delights in. God has begun the saving work of new creation now. It changes how we regard one another. It means that we can be reconciled to God. And then finally, it gives the church its mission. The fact that God has started this new creation work in Christ means that it gives the church its mission. It means the church has a mission. And now we're want to look at the other side of those verses in 18 and 19. What I've ignored earlier, Paul says in verse 18... All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. We've already seen that, but look at the second half. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And now Paul draws a conclusion from this in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, all this talk about God through Christ's work, through His life and death and resurrection, reconciling us to Himself raises a question, doesn't it? Because the Bible speaks of the fact that that you and I have to repent and believe. That that the way that we are saved is by believing and that we believe by, by hearing. And so here's the question. If God has reconciled us through the death of His Son, but we are actually reconciled by by placing our faith in Him, then how does God bring us to faith? If faith comes by hearing, how do we hear? Or to ask it this way, think about John 10. Think when Jesus uses the metaphor, speaking of all of His people as sheep, and He says... As if his sheep have been scattered all over the earth. My sheep will hear my voice and they will come. I've shared before, but I heard this to be true. That you can take sheep from a number of shepherds and put them all together in a large pen. And each shepherd can stand. Say there are four of them, each of them with their own bit of sheep in the sheep pen. Each of them can stand and begin calling their own particular sheep. And all of a sudden, the sheep that look like they're one mass will begin scattering apart, each of the sheep going to a shepherd. That's the imagery Jesus is using. One they would have known well, and Jesus says, I'm going to call my sheep. I know my sheep by name. I'm going to call them, and they are going to come because my sheep will hear my voice. How? How? I mean, Jesus Christ not only was raised from the dead, but He ascended back to the Father's right hand. So if His sheep, if if we who have been scattered all over the face of the earth under judgment are going to hear our shepherd's call and come to Him, realizing the glory of the reconciliation He's brought so that, that we place our faith in Him and are saved, how do we hear His voice? And the glorious answer is... We hear the voice of Christ as His saved people preach. As His saved people proclaim the news, Paul says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Here's how God speaks to us. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. He is calling people to Himself as we preach. He says, We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Or look at the way that Paul speaks in in chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with Him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Brothers and sisters, the glorious gift that you and I have been given is that we get to go forward as mouthpieces of Jesus Christ proclaiming the good news that Christ lived and died and was raised, imploring men, pleading with men to be reconciled to God, to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And as they do so, we can testify, Christ Himself has called you. Christ Himself is bringing you home. And praise God, He does it as we preach, as you and I proclaim the gospel. The mission that Jesus Christ gave His church is to make disciples of all nations. As they come to Christ, we we baptize them. And and then in in, in this setting in which they're part of a local body of believers where they have oversight and care and love and discipline and accountability and teaching, we teach them to obey all that Christ commands. And as we do so, we do so as representatives of Jesus Christ to His people. And so Paul announces in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 this long-awaited work when God would begin his work of new creation, gathering a people to himself, it has begun and has implications. It changes how we view one another. We now see that what unites us across all divisions is that we are in Christ. It it changes uh, the reality that we realize we can be reconciled to God and it gives us a mission. Let's make disciples of all nations. And so what I want to do this morning is give us a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table. And in this moment of silence, it may be that you and I recognize maybe we have allowed some divisions to transcend the union we have in Christ. As if we're regarding one another according to the flesh, when we should regard one another that way no longer. It may be that you've never been reconciled to God. It may be that you're not a believer. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, I want to say to you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I want to implore you, plead with you, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing magical about your actions have to take place. You don't have to walk forward. You don't have to say a certain prayer. You can just place your faith in Jesus Christ right now, turning from your sins, believing that He is who He says He is and what He has done He has done, and that's sufficient. But if you want to talk to me or or somebody after the service, we would love to talk to you about this. Maybe in this time of silence, you want to sit and say, I've been lax about carrying out the mission of the church, and I want to be about making disciples with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to orient my life more around gathering with the saints and seeing Christ honored. Whatever you want to do, we're going to give ourselves a time of silence, and that time of silence... I'll invite the, the musicians to come up because what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table. Nathan's going to join me up front. We're going to hold out the trays. The way that we're going to come to the table is a very simple, straightforward way. Nathan and I will be here and we'll hold out the trays. The trays have stacks of two cups together. You'll see a stack, a, a cup of juice on the top, and then right underneath it you'll see a cup of bread. If you'll just take one stack of two cups, you'll have the bread and the juice We're going to come to the table by allowing the overflow area to my left to come and then the first row over here and then each row is going to come walking to the outside, coming around, getting a serving and then going back into the row from the inside and the second row will follow and the third row will follow and so forth. As we do so, we'll be singing, rejoicing in the love of Christ for us and then we'll eat together and we'll drink together as a way of visibly proclaiming we have heard Christ's word again and we are persevering in our faith. So I'm going to ask now that we'll take a moment of silence as the band and the musicians come forward and we prepare to come to the table this morning.